You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. I sang to you, I sang to you hard this morning. <clears throat> Lost my voice. That was good worship. And, um, you know, on that end, it's always my joy and honor to get this opportunity to worship the Lord with, with, with all of you each and every Sunday. Uh, to that end, I do want to just really quickly acknowledge the worship teams uh, for the amount of uh, preparation and effort that they put into leading us each Sunday. So, so yeah, really quickly, I just want to express my gratitude to the team this morning. Um, as well as to all the other musicians and uh, sound techs and PowerPoint techs who consistently invest into this church and into the body of Christ with excellence and with hearts of worship each and every Sunday. Let's give them all a round of applause for just everything they do. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much, uh, worship teams, uh, for all that you do. So speaking of the subject of uh, being prepared, uh, last week as we went through the middle portion of Luke 12... You might remember that we were encouraged to live out our lives in preparation, wakefulness, and expectation for when Jesus comes again to finally crush evil for good and make all things new. And so on that end, I challenge us to start living each day in anticipation of Jesus' return. Just to have that as our mindset, because not only will this mindset fill us with, with, with a passion and urgency in our calling to proclaim the, his gospel to the world and to continue to grow and mature in Christ as individuals and as the church, but it'll also fill us with hope for what's to come, and therefore, in that hope, we'll, we'll have the perseverance in faith as we wait for that glorious day. And this last part is, is incredibly important for us because as we follow and as we live for Jesus— as we anticipate and wait for his return, our life on this earth will not always be easy. We we know that. I'm I'm saying what we already know, right? It won't always be easy. We'll face hardship. We'll face loss. And we'll face opposition because of our faith. Jesus himself said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's why we keep our eyes on him. So while last week we, we talked about how to live for Jesus in light of his return, this week, which is basically a sequel to that message, uh, we're going to be talking about how we can stand firm in our faith as we come up against and face different types of trials and oppositions along the way, which we'll also be addressing. So let's dig into that right now. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, it's the, the subject matter is going to be a little heavy this morning, a little challenging. Uh, but it's, it's going to be good for us, I think. So just pray that we, we have open hearts to receive what the Lord has for us as we go into his word this morning. Um, I will say that this passage is also quite long, so we're going to start reading by reading the first half and expounding on that a bit, and then, and then we'll um, go through the rest of, of the passage for this morning after that. So let's begin at Luke 12, verse 49. We're going to be reading to 59, and then later on we're going to be going into the beginning of Luke 13 a bit. So we'll start at Luke 12, 49 to 59. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, 
and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from, for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the, the appearance of earth and sky? But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. I told you it was pretty heavy this morning. Um, that last verse, though, is pretty ominous, don't you think? Verse 59, let's read that again. I tell you, you will never get out of prison until you have paid the very last penny. The implication here is that if we find ourselves thrown into this metaphorical prison, then we'll never get out. Because in prison, you can't actually make any money to pay off every last penny, can you? On this verse, theologian Daryl Bach writes, the use of the Greek double negative ume, which means never, makes his statement emphatic. You will never get out without payment. So the point Jesus is making here is that we need to be sure that we've settled our debts and our accounts before we face the judge so that we don't end up in this prison. And while we can certainly apply the metaphor to our relationships and debts with one another, the bigger issue at play here is concerning our relationship with God. That is, we all owe a sin debt to God that needs paying off. And in the book of Romans, among many other uh, verses, it, it reminds us that the wages of sin is death, right? In other words, Satan was wrong when he promised Eve that she wouldn't die if she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death was the cost for denying God's way and choosing for ourselves what, what is right and what is wrong. And so every, every time we sin, we're basically doing what Eve did. We're basically eating of the tree, we're, we're making a decision that our morality is better than God's. But apart from God, it leads to death. Because without God, the source of life will find death. On that end, we also need to understand that the very idea of death is offensive to the God who created and sustains life. Which is why Jesus tells us, praise God, that before he comes again, to bring this fire of judgment upon the whole earth, first, he'll pay the wages of sin for us through a baptism of death upon the cross and then through his resurrection from the grave. So that through this sacrifice, through his sacrifice, he can pay off the penalty we owed for our sin. 
so that he alone can give us the blessed opportunity to settle our accounts before we get dragged before the judge. Because he doesn't want us to perish. Romans 6.23 sums this up when it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We owe death, but Jesus pays it and gives us eternal life instead. That's grace. You know, sometimes when, when I'm on Instagram, I try not to go on there very much these days, but sometimes when I am, I see, I see these uh, spam comments on popular posts, and, and they always say something like, um, I'll pay off all the financial debts of the first person who contacts me, or the first five people who contact me. Has anyone seen those? Yeah, one, one person? You've never seen those? Oh, some people have. Yeah, if you just read comments, sometimes you see someone write that. It's so, it's so weird. Um, obviously, that's just someone trying to, trying to get you to you know, join a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme or trying to get your bank account information or whatever, right? But, but unlike that, Jesus' offer to have our sin debts, past, present, and future, wiped clean, along with the weight of all our shame and our striving, is not only real, but it's free, and it's incredibly freeing. When you repent, which means turn to him, and then humbly confess your sins and believe by faith in his saving grace, you will experience it and know it. And many of you have already experienced this and know it. In Christ, by the power of his death and resurrection, you'll be reborn into newness of life, covered in his forgiveness and righteousness and filled with his spirit. Which is now what water baptism signifies for us, right? Old self dying with Christ and our new self being raised up with Christ in the power of his spirit. And as, as Pastor Brad mentioned earlier in the announcements, we're having another baptism service in a couple of weeks. So if you'd like to commit your life to Christ as his disciple by obediently taking the step of faith, then again, let us know. We'd be happy to oblige. Anyways, because Jesus paid it all, because of him, our accounts have been settled. Which also means that as believers, we don't need to fear this day of judgment when it comes. We can actually anticipate it. We can look forward to it. We can hope in it knowing that we'll be judged solely based on what Jesus has done for us and not by our own sin. But make no mistake, his baptism via death and resurrection is a reminder now as well that that fire of judgment has been kindled and is coming soon. Acts 17, 30 to 31 tell us, tells us that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has fixed a day in which the only one who is worthy to judge in perfect justice and righteousness, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will come once for all. And we'll all stand before him and we'll all take account but the question for us is, what will his judgment be like when that day comes? Well, the Bible tells us that to the unrepentant debtors, his judgment will come like a consuming fire. 
burning away all that is unrighteous and evil. But to the believers, the ones who are now debt-free by his grace, he'll come to us like a refining, refiner's fire, right? purifying and renewing us into his likeness. Simply put, when he comes again, as it says in Matthew and in Revelation, he'll command his angels at the sound of a trumpet to separate the righteous from the unrighteous who will then be thrown into the fire. And again, this use of the, the word fire is somewhat metaphorical. Right? We, when we get that word fire in our head, we think of Dante's Inferno or something like that. We, we don't actually know if hell will be like a fire. Earlier, Jesus said it'll be like a prison. Uh, and, he, and there's other metaphors about hell throughout the scripture as well. So we don't actually know what it is like. But the point and the intensity of the warning still remains, right? For who can withstand his fire? Who can withstand his judgment? As the scriptures say, only those who are saved in Christ. In fact, Jesus is warning us here. He's pleading with us. He's reminding us. He's hoping for us and, and pursuing us to the point of dying on the cross for us. Also that we can be sure to have our accounts settled before that day comes. A.W. Tozer writes that the reason God is not yet sent to judgment upon this earth is to give the inhabitants the time and opportunity to repent of their sins. It is an awesome, terrifying fact. Deal with your sin now, or your sin will deal with you later. And so, like Jesus is doing in this passage, I want to plead with you, with any of you here this morning or listening online who haven't done this. Now is the time of your salvation. Don't wait before it's too late. Repent and believe and be baptized in Jesus' name. Accept his payment for your sin debts and be set free by his grace. And for those who have already found salvation in Christ, we're not off the hook here either. The rest of this message is concerning our own time as we wait for that day. Because as I said earlier, last week we learned about our, our calling and our mandate as we wait, that we need to live each day in anticipation of Jesus' return, preparing ourselves, being watchful and awake, proclaiming his gospel to as many as we can. But as we do it, and as we seek to live it out and grow in our faith, and as the body of Christ, sometimes it's going to be really hard. And Jesus wants us to know this. He, he doesn't want us to be caught off guard from the reality of what we're going to face in this world as his followers. And so he tells us like it is. And so, yes, I want to clarify that following Jesus is also full of joy and peace and purpose and freedom, but it can also be really difficult. He reminds us that in this world, we're, we're going to face constant distractions, oppositions, tragedies, and temptations, which will test our faith and even try to pull us away from it. Trials that will intentionally or even unintentionally tempt us to doubt, become discouraged or angry or whatever else, right? And, and this passage highlights for us many of those scenarios in which Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised by. And we're, we're going to go through each of those now. So first of all, we're informed by Jesus that even as we wait for that day when he restores all things with his holy fire, as we wait for him to fully separate the righteous from the unrighteous and bring us into the Father's eternal presence, the truth is that we're already going to feel and experience 
the evidence of this separation, this, the tension of this division already occurring between those who choose to follow him and those who don't. He tells us to expect it. He tells us to expect division on this earth, especially in the form of opposition to our faith. Luke 12, 51 to 53. Again, we'll read that. It says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. This is to say they might be divided. They will be divided. Father against son and son against mother, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This statement by Jesus, it seems to contradict what we just celebrated at Christmas, right? Isn't he supposed to be the prince of peace? Peace on earth and, and goodwill toward men and all that? Well, yes, he is the prince of peace. But as, he's, as, he, as he tells us in, in his word, the peace he brings is not like the peace the world tries to bring. It's an everlasting and enduring peace. Which, which is, first of all, a transcendent or supernatural peace between God and man, which was won solely through sin's defeat at the cross. And secondly, it's a peace that's been brokered between all those who follow Jesus, who are filled with the same spirit, whether Jew or Greek. And thankfully, it's a peace that we can carry with us and rest in, a peace beyond understanding, even as we face opposition and chaos and anxiety, and all those things of the world around us, because that's the world we live in. Again, we need to be aware, if, if, if you haven't experienced this already, that those who refuse to follow Jesus will naturally stand against those who do. Our faith in Christ will inevitably create division with others in our lives. And that could be within our families, our friendships, with, with our coworkers, our classmates, and the list goes on. And not that we seek division, not not, not that that, that we try to be divisive through being rude or hateful or whatever else. No, we're called to love and honor everyone. But division will occur because in Christ we've become set apart from the world. We've become something different. We've become citizens and family members of God's kingdom where we now have a diff- where we now have different value systems and morals and desires and callings and ways of living and loving that the world can't and won't get behind because they don't understand it. It's foolishness to them. Mostly though, we now carry a message of salvation from sin that in and of itself is offensive to those who refuse to accept they need it. So to put it simply, our our peace with God through Jesus Christ now puts us at odds and enmity with the world. And so just as Jesus suffered at the hands of those who opposed him, so should his disciples expect to suffer at the hands of the world as well. Just as he warned his disciples in Matthew 10, 22, he says to them, just straight up, he says to them, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or as the Apostle John writes, 1 John 3, 
13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So this opposition can come in many forms. Again, ostracism from family and friends, or even persecution, or mockery, or rejection. And so the temptation, obviously, then, that, that exists in the midst of all of this is, is to reject our faith or reject Jesus in order to avoid this division, right? In order to avoid being canceled or whatever, right? But I want to say, don't give in. Keep turning to Jesus. Keep that attitude of repentance. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So following and knowing Jesus is more than anything we face or come up against. He's worth being ostracized for. He's worth enduring persecution for. He's worth suffering for. He's worth losing family for. If that's what it takes, because he's our salvation and our true family and our eternal peace. Secondly, though, another trial we might come up against as we wait for him is that we might become distracted or unaware of the times that we're living in. In a way, we talked about this last week, so I don't need to divulge too much on this, but Jesus reminds us, again, spiritually and mentally speaking, to stay awake and sober and alert so that we're not caught off guard by his coming again. To this, Jesus writes in, in Luke 12, 54 to 56, we'll read this again. He also said to the crowds, when you, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but, you, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? It's so easy to become distracted by the temptations and cares of this world, right? I mean, we can get so caught up in, in, in predicting and, and giving attention to and, and, and giving our, our pride to, to the fact that we can predict the weather or, or politics or or the markets, or the, the cultural trends, or our selfish needs, or, or whatever else, that we forget. We forget to ask or pay attention to what God is up to. We can get so distracted with the physical that we, we neglect the spiritual. And I should mention that in this passage, Jesus is, is, is surely speaking to his present time, his pre- that present moment that he's, he's living in there, and that so many Israelites failed to see what God was up to in fulfilling his promise to send a savior to rescue them from their sin. But yet, this message is still applicable to us today. And so are we awake? Are we awake? Are we paying attention to what God's doing today? Do we recognize and acknowledge that we're, we're in the now and not yet? We're in the time between the resurrection and the second coming. And that God's preparing us as his church in the power of his spirit and and in his truth to spend eternity with him. We can't neglect that. And again, we need to have an attitude of repentance, of keeping our eyes on Jesus. 
so that we don't lose sight of what God is doing in this time. Thirdly then, as we follow Jesus and wait for his return, we're going to come up against conflict and, and disunity. Conflict and disunity. And, and yes, even disunity within the church sometimes. I know some of us have experienced that in the past. And so Jesus, through this parable of, 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 of the debtor coming before the magistrate, reminds us that we're, when we're indebted to someone, we should settle that dispute and pay them back in full before we get dragged before the judge. And this isn't, isn't just talking about money, right? That's the metaphor. It's talking about sinning against someone or hurting somebody or whatever else. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, the, the bigger picture of this parable is regarding settling our sin debts with God through repentance in Jesus before the day of judgment. But, but it can also certainly be applied to our relationships with one another. For how many church splits and, and disagreements and hurts have we seen within the church because people failed to repent or forgive? We know that this kind of, of strife or conflict or offense within the church can be incredibly damaging to the body of Christ. And it can and it has certainly wrecked and destroyed the faith of many people because of what they've been through and gone through because of how the church has hurt them. And that sucks. And so when an offense or strife comes, and it will because none of us are perfect yet, let's not get caught off guard by it. But rather, let us leave our gifts at the altar before we worship the Lord and first seek to repent and find reconciliation according to to the reconciling grace that we've already been given in Christ. And this is actually a lesson that we'll learn multiple times as we progress through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, which is good because I think we often need that reminder. I know I do. Fourthly, though, as we follow Jesus, we're also going to face tragedy and disaster. Tragedy and disaster. The world's full of it, right? Most of us recognize or have experiences of the fact that, that moments of tragedy in our lives or within the world, especially when, when they catch us off guard. They, they have this, tragedy has this way of, of getting us to question or doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God. Right? It also has a way of, of causing us to shift our theology where, where, where maybe we might be tempted to wonder or start to think that, or, or even assume that, 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 that this tragedy or suffering is God's way of doling out his judgment on us. And thirdly, tragedy also has a way, especially when it comes in the form of persecution, to make us angry, question our life choices and our faith. So this is a big deal. Ultimately, if we're not expecting tragedy in this life, we're likely to become overwhelmed by the burden of it and overwhelmed even by trying to figure out the reasons for it. And so Jesus addresses it here. Luke 13, 1 to 5. There was some present at that very time who told, him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So in, the, in this passage, Jesus addresses two forms of tragedy, right? One which came in the form of persecution at the hands of the Romans, which seems, it's, it's, it's unclear exactly what's going on there, but it seems to be a specific incident of Jews being murdered within the sacred temple grounds, which sounds horrible. And secondly, he addresses another kind of natural disaster, one which accidentally took the lives of 18 construction workers as they were building a tower. So in light of both situations, it, it seemed like many people were wondering if, if, if these people had it coming because of their sin, right? If, if God was judging them, casting his judgment upon them in that moment, which is exactly what, if you read through the book of Job, that's what Job's friends were wrongly telling Job, that that's why he was suffering. But really he was suffering at the hands of evil and of Satan, right? And so Jesus says to them about both of these tragedies, no, they're not suffering God's judgment. That, that's not what's happening there. And if it was, he implies that we'd all be hooped and dead too because their sin isn't greater than ours. Why would he just randomly choose 18 people to judge and not us as well when our sin is just as great as theirs? Rather, the biggest lesson the living should learn from any tragedy or disaster, Jesus tells us, in whatever form it comes, intentional or unintentional, is that our own time is fleeting and that one day we will perish too. And the only way to be ready for that day so that we don't perish eternally is through a continued posture of repentance and faith before Christ. Hopefully you're seeing that theme of repentance come up over and over and over again. You know, I, I remember when a tsunami ripped through uh, Japan a couple years ago. You guys remember that? And it killed thousands of people. It was an incredibly tragic tragedy of epic proportions, right? Totally sad. And then I remember though that some girl made a, a video on YouTube, which went viral, unfortunately. And in it, she was saying that this tsunami was God's judgment over them. Well, she was wrong, and she'd obviously misreading this passage. God's judgment is coming on the day of the Lord. And thankfully for us, he's being patient in his coming so that all might come to repentance before that day. Which leads us to the fifth trial we face as we wait for that day, and that's fruitlessness. Luke 13, 6-9 and Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. 
Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This parable shows us that while we wait for Christ to come, he's given us both the calling and the time to bear good fruit. Jesus tells us in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so the danger of the Christian life is that we fail to live it out. That our faith becomes apathetic or shallow. That we convince ourselves that, oh, praying the Lord's Prayer is enough for our salvation, and then, and then, we, and then we fail to prove our faith or Christ's love in us through good works and through shining the light of his name in the world. Because have we really found salvation in Christ if our supposed change of heart doesn't also become evident in our lives? No, faith without works is dead. And Jesus even tells us that if we are abiding in him, like branches to the vine, we will bear fruit. It's not a question of if, it's a guarantee. We'll bear different amounts of fruit, but we will bear fruit. Do or do not, there is no try, as Yoda would say. I'm a Star Wars nerd. I have to throw that in there. But before Jesus comes, let's be sure that, that we're abiding in him so that by his strength and his spirit working in us, we can and will bear fruit. Otherwise, Jesus says the branches will be cut off the branches that don't bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Thankfully for us, though, Jesus is incredibly, miraculously, undeservedly patient with us in this process. Way more, way more than we deserve. The image of, of, of the vine dresser pleading with the man to not cut the fruitless tree down and to give us more time to produce fruit is a reminder for us that God is patient with us. But what's also a reminder that we have no excuse because he's given us all the nutrients we need to bear fruit. His grace, his spirit, his word, the church, his presence. But as we've been discussing, he won't wait forever. He won't wait forever. He is coming again. And when he does come, he'll come like a thief in the night. He'll come in glory and with holy fire. As theologian Tabiti Aniabwile writes, the Lord is being patient. He gives more time. He waits for his servants to bear fruit. But he will not always wait. He will not always be patient. One day he will inspect us for fruit. The question is, will we be fruit-bearing or will we be fruitless? It's interesting, though, that, that Jesus leaves this parable open-ended and that we don't know that the end of the story or we don't know what happens to that tree. We don't know if it bore fruit or if it eventually did get cut down 
and thrown into the fire. And so in a way, I think we can also apply this same open-endedness to each of our lives. Will we make the decision each and every day to keep an attitude of humble repentance as we follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Will we keep our eyes on him and therefore continue to persevere and grow in our faith and bear good fruit even in the midst of any opposition or distractions or disputes or division and tragedy that will certainly come our way? Will we continually fall on our knees in repentance? Or will we refuse to settle our accounts before the Lord and risk having him come in judgment at a time we don't expect? For your sake, I hope it's the former. And so does Jesus. As the Apostle Peter sums up so eloquently in 2 Peter 3, 9-15, He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and its works will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to conduct yourselves in holiness and godliness as you anticipate and hasten the coming of the day of God, when the heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, as you anticipate these things, make every effort to be found at peace, spotless and blameless in his sight. Consider also that our Lord's patience brings salvation. So right now, I want to invite each of you to Take some time on your own to come before the Lord with repentant hearts. To turn to him and, and unload your burdens before the foot of the cross. Lay your sin and, and your shame and your doubts and your life at his feet. Receive his grace. Receive his freedom. Receive his word. Receive his strength so that, so that as you walk out these doors today, covered in his armor, you can be ready for whatever the world throws at you. And while we normally receive communion together as the, as the body of Christ, uh, today I'm going to invite you to receive it on your own or with your family after you've spent some time in repentance because I don't want to choose for you how long you need to sit before the Lord. And so when you're ready, I invite you to receive his body which is broken for you and his blood which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. But again, before we do that, and as the worship team plays in the background, let's now turn and bear our hearts and our souls 
before the Lord in repentance.